Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Liquid's very own Death Star. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian, still and always. Today's episode is Back to Zero, our ninth episode on Guns of the Patriots, the fourth Metal Gear Solid title. Today, we work through the final act, Old Sun, and the last punishment Solid Snake endures. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. And I'll also throw in a trigger warning here. Um, There is talk of suicide and suicidal ideation uh, when we talk about wrapping up Old uh, old Snake's character arc. So uh, just want to throw that out there and just be warned when we go into the game's epilogue. A giant microwave oven. You'd have to have a death wish to go in there. Sounds like the perfect job for me. Unlike the previous mission briefings, The one preceding Act 5 is set on the USS Missouri in lieu of the Nomad, and Mei Ling has taken point on the operation. Thanks to plans provided by Princess Leah, or I mean Naomi, they have analyzed Outer Haven and determined that a lone fighter can make its way to the core and destroy the GWAI before Liquid can launch his naked nuke and destroy JD, which is floating in Earth's orbit. That AI core, however, is guarded by unmanned sentries and, more harrowingly, microwave emitters that will fry anyone who attempts to pass through. Seems like the perfect job for Snake, who's sucking on a breathing tube the entire time. <laughs> He's on death's door and needs to kill himself prior to Fox die mutating, so yeah, perfect job for him. During the scene, we get glimpses of Snake's vision failing him, which had been alluded to in previous acts. And also, Johnny is being super horny for Mei Ling right in front of Meryl, and, well, can't blame him? Mei Ling will occasionally drop things on the floor, and when she bends over to pick them up, she sticks her butt out as she continues the briefing. It's very MGS horniness. The briefing ends with Snake asking for a light, and we get a brief two-hander with just Otacon and Snake talking about this final mission, the final punishment that Snake must endure. It's a good moment for our two protagonists, and Hal even helps Snake light his cigarette, though not without asking if Snake has ever considered quitting. And oh, maybe someone else can reach the GW core instead of Snake? Nah, replies Snake. It's his duty to see it through. Nay, it's their duty to see it through. Why don't we get somebody else to go? There's no need for you to do it. I still have things left to do. The side smoke. The final act opens aboard the deck of the Missouri with a slow mo shot of Snake, Otacon, Merrill, and Johnny walking towards catapults that will launch them onto Liquid Ship. They talk about Raiden during the segment, noting that he is alive, but in no condition to help. Speaking of little help, the other soldiers aboard the battleship are all on edge. Without SOP, they don't know how to regulate their own emotions for war. And then Drebin shows up, doing his own solid snake landing as he leaps down from a turret onto the ship's deck. Snake is basically the only business he can do these days, and he's giving him a discount on any hardware he may need. Oh, and he also gives Snake a light for his last cigarette, with the flame protruding from his fingers with no lighter in sight. Little Grey, however, begs for the cigarette, and Snake relents and gives it up to the monkey. Campbell calls in to wish our cast good luck, and has some kind words for Meryl about making him proud and how he never stopped caring for her. Their relationship will be reconciled in the game's ending, but he had to say something now just in case she doesn't return. And with that, we're ready for the final stretch of this game. Let's finish it, Snake. Let this be our last battle. A quick fun fact on Outer Haven, it's designated as a Kerikion-class ship, which is Greek for Herald Staff. What this is likely referring to is the Caduceus, a staff carried by Hermes or Mercury that depicts two intertwined snakes on it. 
We talked previously about how the act structure of this game invokes Shakespearean tragedy, and now we get some symbolism that relates to Greek tragedy as well. The two kinds of tragedy. <laughs> yes. That's it. There's no other kinds. The catapults launch Snake, Merrill, and Johnny towards Arsenal gear. Snake makes a relatively clean landing, but Merrill gets a little banged up on hers, and Johnny, of course, misses and seems to fall into the ocean. Snake makes his way towards the lower decks of Outer Haven, and this map here is extremely small. You begin in caution mode, and frogs begin closing in on you right away. It's not a time to be cute, really. I just trank and run through this map as quickly as possible. The biggest challenge is getting the hatch at the far end of the map open, as it's guarded by Gecko. I usually use a railgun to clear, the, clear it out. All in all, this sequence can basically be completed in a minute, which admittedly is kind of a letdown for me. Would have hoped for more gameplay or stealth maps in this final act. Basically the only one, right? Like, Yeah, this is all there is, and then it's all just boss battles and set pieces, I guess, from here. Yeah, and I, I like I like seeing art. Like we talked about this. It's one of the things that makes uh two sort of more weird in retrospect is that like this is what Arsenal gear actually looks like Mm -hmm. it does not look like the weird code bleeding from the walls and all the like endless dark pits and all that weird shit in two like that was something hyper real was happening there like maybe the most hyper real thing in the entire series to me so okay this this just kind of looks like i mean it looks it's not a bad design it's a very 2008 kind of design but it, it is just sort of burn it like sleek metal and burnished corridors and like you can like count rivets and stuff like it looks good but it it's it makes two seem even weirder in retrospect because this is this supposed to be the same I mean, there's only one arsenal gear it's not this is a it's a new it's it's a new build but it's it is arsenal gear design yeah it's the same yeah it's the same design is what i meant to say it's not yeah. like it's just interesting. I really think it's a fa- it makes two more fascinating because like replay just replaying two, having after played four after I played four, I, I realized that and was like this is different. This is not what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. Um. On the outside, it honestly doesn't have that much more of a different aesthetic than the tanker from Metal Gear Solid Two. To be honest, uh, this uh Outer Haven that you're uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. penetrate it basically looks like some kind of modern battleship essentially yep um on the deck that you have to navigate so um some stairwells there are a couple not really any hatches you can go in but yeah there's a little bit of verticality a couple stairwells and uh catwalks um then a couple big pillars um and then kind of an open area where the gecko patrol but um the frogs are basically closing in on you from the minute you start um like they start in caution and you can see them leaping on the screen and kind of pursuing to the back of uh, haven where you landed so you can't really just stay and wait anywhere you kind of just have to start moving right as soon as you get um, control of snake again snake makes his way to the haven's command center which resembles an amphitheater with a large holographic globe at its center snake discovers Merrill laying on the floor and he's immediately surrounded by frogs snake clears the room which leads into our final beast battle this time with screaming mantis it has been a long time, Snake. You, Psycho Mantis. No, that was another me. Can you hear the screams? <laughs> the cry for battle. Let me hear you scream. Howl, roar. From the very depths of your Screaming Mantis with Beauty voiced by Andrea Zatra and Beast voiced again by Fred Tatashore with motion capture done by Scarlett Shorvat. Her backstory includes being from a South American village, where which was burned down by death squads. Uh, she had hidden a basement, which was filled with corpses. Um, she had an hallucination of a mantis, which led her to eat all the male corpses to survive. And then later, she would be recovered by the Patriots, where she would undergo gene, nano, and psychotherapy. Psychotherapy. <laughs> to imprint the psych of Psychomantis onto her, um, allowing her to be the leader of the Beauty and the Beast Corps and control the other beasts that we've already talked about on this podcast. Her associated PMC is Praying Mantis which has a slogan of sense of duty when the risk runs high. 
Uh, it just kind of hammers home a couple points related to the themes of this game. Sense, of course, is the organizing word that Kojima liked to use. And risk running high could invoke the war economy because, you know, the economy is the most important thing in the world, apparently. Uh, Praying Mantis specialized in urban and desert warfare, um, especially in training other forces and security detail. We actually see them mostly in Act 1 of this game. They're the PMC that's patrolling the Middle East. Um, Everything in Outer Haven is basically um, Ocelot's elite, elite, personal, private security detail. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, the boss fight itself takes place again in a command center, uh, which could be a reference to the fact that she, uh, psych- a Screaming Mantis sorry, is the one who controls or is in command of all the other beasts through nanomachines. Um, the hollow globe in the middle could be a representation of both the fact that the entire world has been militarized and turned into a war zone, both in Metal Gear Solid's world and in our real world, as well as the fact that this is the most global um the globetrotting adventure of the series. And again, it's it's like an amphitheater setup. It's a very circular arrangement of desks and catwalks around this hologram globe. Um, it gives it kind of the feel of a play or, you know, just some kind of performance piece, which, you know, all art is, so to speak, you know, run with that analogy however you want to. Um, in terms of Mantis's weapons, she has two dolls that hang from her like a marionette marionettes sorry and um, one is a doll of the sorrow from mgs3 and the other is of psycho mantis from mgs1 uh the mantis one is the one that you need to target it's the one that she really uses to control um, other people and you can do the same and then the sorrow doll is kind of like a non-lethal version of the mantis doll Uh, So what happens is when the boss battle starts, Snake will be kind of under the control of Mantis and the fact that he won't be able to fire his gun. And uh, instead of switching controller ports, which you really don't do in a wireless setting, uh, you uh, take out the syringe, which suppresses nanomachines as convenient to the plot. And from there, you can then attack. uh, You can attack Mantis, but what you're really doing is you're trying to shoot the dolls off of her so that you can use them against her. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, Mantis will repeat a lot of the stuff um, that happened in the Psycho Mantis battle in MGS1, mainly with uh, using the nanomachines to control Meryl, and at at certain points, Meryl will point her gun at you, the player, and then also at herself, and you're going to have to use some kind of non-lethal method, whether, you know, punch-punch-kick or... um, what's it called, the tranquilizer, shotgun, V-ring, to knock her down so then you can resume to targeting Mantis. Um, and we also get a little tease about the fact that Johnny or Akiba has no nano machines um, because when uh, Mantis tries to control him, just nothing happens. And this all gets explained to us immediately after this battle. Um, but this is kind of the sum of all the why Johnny, you know, can't control his shits or um, isn't in sync with his team. This is kind of where all that stuff becomes cleared up. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, into other weapons she used, uh, she has a lot of knife attacks, which are supposed to kind of call back to Vamp from MGS2. Again, all these people have um, weapons taken from previous MGS2 villains. And then she also has arms ordaining her, so she has the many arms of a mantis. And the arms are basically the same arms that ordain the dwarf gecko, um, the ones that are the little you know balls with the hands on them. So that's kind of a summary of her attacks. Um in terms of fighting her, you really don't have to worry about what weapon to use because you're not really targeting Mantis. You're targeting the two dolls or you're specifically targeting the Psycho Mantis doll. Um, you shoot it enough times, it breaks free from her uh, marionette strings and then you have to go pick it up and then throw it at Mantis and that will allow you to beat the fight. Um, the Sorrow doll is optional. Um, you can get it if you want and it's mostly so you have a non-lethal version of the Mantis doll that you can use on subsequent playthroughs. You're not really going to get an opportunity to fight soldiers again in this game, so they're not of much use on this playthrough. Uh, I remember I was trying to punch everybody at the start of it because I didn't know what I was doing. It was just weird because I think, again, I played this in like 2010, maybe 2011 or 12, but I guess I just not internalized what you're supposed to do. So I remember just like running around punching everybody, <laughs> which was fun. This is really like the last gameplay segment of the game, honestly. Like, mm-hmm. it's really like the last time you can lose, there's any kind of fail state. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just, I don't know, man. I, I honestly think looking back, going through this, a lot of my 
I don't want disdain is far too harsh a word. It's still a good game, but a lot of my a lot of stuff I don't like about this game is sort of me just projecting the back half of Act Three and the back half of Act Five onto the rest of the game. So it's it just gets to the point where like you don't get to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's like the style of Metal Gear is to me. Yeah, like I don't know. It's 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 unfortunate, and it's 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 also because three was my first one. But look back at the last three hours of three and how like good and well paced and balanced it is and there's just nothing like that here it's just it just starts like right after this fight it just starts and then it's just like three hours <laughs> ending yeah and like this is really it like it's not it's a it's a decent fight and it's a, it's a neat fight to throw back to some of the mana stuff but like it's just kind of the end of the game already like i don't know i, I just yeah. not i'm not crazy about it yeah no uh, again going back to uh what are the end of act three discussion about how much gameplay there is uh this act i think as much as act three suffers from if you gave me just a little more if you like if outer haven was as big as say the tanker from mgs2 so you had a couple maps and you had to work your way down to the holds and then you have a big boss fight with the second version of mantis and all that um you know it's just i wish there was more to it again that uh map on the deck if you know where you're going, you'll finish it in under a minute. Um, mm-hmm. You really just need to a couple of well-placed tranks and a railgun shot, and you'll get through that map really quickly, um, no matter what the difficulty is. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of a bummer that it's this, and then it's a bunch of long cutscenes, not just one, but several. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, there's the Ocelot fight, which is a pretty good fight, but, you know, that that itself has its own like 10 minute cutscene that proceeds where you actually play it. And then you go right into a 74 minute ending cutscene. It's mostly a cutscene anyway. Like it really is. Mm-hmm. It's not, I don't know. I don't really consider it like a boss fight as it is sort of just a culmination, which is fine. If then, if, if that was the end of like, if that, if that happened at the end of MGS three, like in the same place as the boss fight, it would be, it'd be good. It'd be an interesting fight, but it's just, I mean, again, we're, we're going to, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute, but like compare, the last fights of these four games, the liquid, I mean, it is a little bit like the liquid fight, which is obviously the point, mm-hmm. but yeah, the, the liquid fight, which is like kind of tough the first time you got, I mean, you got the Metal Gear fight, which is hard. Right. But for the first time, you don't know what you're doing. Then you've got the entire, you got like the Ray fight and two, I mean, two is not even like gameplay wise, two is not anything special aside from sword fighting the president. But two is just, you know, it's two, it goes so fucking far. And then three, you know, the, the, the boss fight, at the end of three, it's just the best. It's perfect. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's perfect. It's probably the best final boss I've ever played. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I can really compare it to is like JR- like some JRPG boss fights. Yeah. Or like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I guess it's, it's unfair. It's a medium. Like, again, if you compare MGS4 to like other games of 2008, it's still way ahead, most of them. Like, it's still just a really interesting, polished, like, well made game. Good, like really good game but compared it's a medium that it really struggles with like concise endings because how are you supposed to properly end a conservatively five to thirty hour experience mm-hmm. like it's hard to do there's there's very few games there's less than 10 games that i would say have like legitimately good endings and not just like i don't know maybe maybe that's me I, i'm I mean, Dice of the Republic is my favorite game. You'll see if you ever beat it that the ending is literally just like the Star Wars one, like their New Hope ending. So it's like not mm-hmm. very good. Nothing wrong with it. It's just sort of like, and then everyone, and then everyone did. They finished the job, and everyone was happy. That's the ending. Like that's not a very good ending, good or thought provoking anyway. But like MGS 4s ending is not bad in a vacuum, but compared to one, two, and three, it's bad. Like those are all so much better. Mm-hmm. I'll give you this that. Is, this is a series that is famous for its really good endings. Yeah, and then I would even say, Peace Walker's ending is pretty good. Revenge's ending is awesome and insane. And then, like, I mean, it's better than V because V doesn't really have an ending. But even then, the Sahelanthropus fight is pretty good. I like it personally. Yeah. Oh, I have so many thoughts on V, quote unquote, ending, but we still yeah, have a couple yeah, months yeah. till there. But yeah, I don't know. It's just, I'm getting ahead of myself with this, but this is sort of the end of the game. And it's just, it's, it's a, as always, MGS4 is, is cut, cut off at the knees by just A, like being in the, un, un, the unenviable position of having to wrap, to take these three very disparate games and put them together. 
but also like it's just obsessed with doing that to its own detriment every single almost every single time and these are not new i'm not i'm not pretending like this this is stuff people have been talking about for 13 years and it's true to me after the requisite beauty segment and drebin call the remaining armor of Screaming Mantis starts to float up, and we see it being controlled by the Phantom of Psycho Mantis, making his return to do some of his PS1 tricks, i.e. read memory cards and vibrate controllers. Psycho Mantis. Of course, that's old technology, and this whole cutscene speaks to obsolescence, not just of Mantis's power, but of Snake and of Metal Gear Solid games. It's all old now, and time to pass away. The segment ends with an audio flashback to the sorrow, the spirit of the warrior lives within you. Lines originally meant for the boss and then naked snake or big boss, but coming back to close the curtains on this snake, which is just a cool moment for Solid Snake, in my opinion. Yeah, it's great. Snake continues into the guts of Outer Haven, while Johnny and Meryl hold down the command center against more incoming troops. The Johnny and Meryl stuff is long and not good, though some fun action sequences are thrown in, such as them rolling around and reloading each other's guns. The main thing that comes out of here is the revelation that Johnny doesn't have nanos, which explains all the stuff I mentioned just a few minutes ago. Um, and then there's also a marriage proposal in there. Johnny asks Meryl, but Meryl says no. She's going to ask Johnny. It's cute, I guess, but it's it's just a lot of filler, and it's really just kind of in the middle of other stuff you kind of want the game to get to. Mm. Go on without me. This time, I'll protect you. Go. Well, there's still time. Well, I'm still alive. Meryl. Snake's journey towards the AI core takes him past the missile hold in Arsenal, where you'll hear a lot of audio from earlier in this game, mainly from this act. Basically reiterating the stakes of the story, and that this may be the last time we control Solid Snake. Eventually, some dwarf gecko will show up to harangue you, but I use Raven's grenade launcher to clear a path and just roll on through. They don't become they don't become engaging to fight it anyway until you have a sword. <laughs> until you're the sword man. That's they're fun to fight in Revengeance because you just you don't even fight them, you just rip through them. It's great. Snake reaches the antechamber before the microwave tunnel, and his body starts to completely give out. He has a coughing fit, his vision starts to go, and he crumbles in a heap as frogs surround him for the kill. But at that moment, Raiden shows up with his katana between his teeth and no arms otherwise. He uses a lightning attack to clear the first wave of troops and offers to take Snake's place in heading towards the core. You, you said he uses a lightning attack. He, you mean to say that he is lightning? Yeah, yeah. The famous line we all love. Mm-hmm. He, he's, Snake stops him, though. There are people who still care for Raiden, and he has his life to live. He's the lightning in the storm. <laughs> Snake is just a shadow in the shape of a man, and it's his responsibility to save this broken world of snakes and metal gears. But Raiden needs to live and needs to love. And laugh. <laughs> of course. Live, laugh, <laughs> love, pray, eat, love, laugh, that's, live. That's Raiden's mantra. He'll live and by. let die. <laughs> Uh, this all reminds me of a quote from A Dance with Dragons, which goes, Men's lives have meanings, not their deaths. Raiden escorts Snake to the entrance of the microwave tunnel as more frogs close in on them. Snake locks the door behind him as Raiden is left to fend off the Haven troopers. Snake enters the tunnel, an immediate wave of heat blasts through on screen in a pretty cool effect. The love theme comes in, and we do more split-screen action as Snake's walk of punishment is juxtaposed to the battles being fought elsewhere. Meryl and Johnny in the command center, Raiden against the frogs, and even the naval battle between the Missouri and Haven, which includes Metal Gear rays attacking the battleship. And near the end, we do see the railgun on Haven's deck charging to take out the JD satellite in Earth's orbit. 
This is perhaps my favorite moment of MGS4, though it's mostly about the vibes than gameplay. You basically just have to keep pushing forward while avoiding the prod sticking out of the wall and tap the triangle button whenever Snake appears to stall. You start this portion on both feet, but by the end you are crawling toward the finish. It vaguely reminds me of MGSV, the hospital scene, which starts out with Snake crawling very laboriously out of his room and he slowly gets to his feet over time. This is basically the inverse. This also stands in as this game's torture scene, picking up that meme from previous games. It's really effective. It's a much better use of the uh, split screen stuff than I think the vamp fight. Because mm-hmm. I think I think the vamp fight was like kind of cool, like trying to trick you into being distracted by watching all the cool the cool fighting and getting letting a, a gecko come in and kill everybody. But I think this is this is good. It's good. It's just sort of. I don't want to say it's heavy-handed because it's Metal Gear. It's always it's the heaviest hand you've ever seen. Um, but once you see it the first time, you're just, yeah, I get it. Like this is this is the this is a, it's a good sequence. Like I, I, it's one of the better sequences of the ending as a whole. But it's I don't know. It's it's also I think it's held back a little bit by it being doing the MacGuffin stuff. Like you got to upload the virus. You know the famous. I, I feel like if if he was crawling, if somebody, if like Otacon was injured or something, he's trying to get to him. I think it'd be more emotionally effective. But it's just sort of him doing the plot. But it's good. I I, I I'm being negative today about it, but it's a very good sequence, and it's uh, a really interesting vocal performance from David Hayes. We eventually make it to GW's core, which is basically just a giant server room. However, it's arranged in a way to resemble a graveyard, and all the tombstones are ordained with holograms of the Star of Bethlehem, the white flowers associated with the boss from MGS3. I appreciate the symbolism here. While the big boss Zero Schism was driven by the boss's will, that will is now dead, and all that remains is a graveyard, which we'll come back to again in the game's epilogue. Otacon, via the Metal Gear Mark III, R2-D2's The Core, uploading Naomi and Sonny's Fox Alive virus into the mainframe just in time. He destroys the One Ring, and all the AI cores are taken down, but in a semi-twist, I guess, all the other necessary digital infrastructure for society is left in place. It wasn't a complete destruction of the system, but a wipe of the Patriots' control. It's a little bit Matrix Revolutions-y, wherein the Matrix wasn't fully destroyed, but opened itself to free will again. I'm hoping we drop this episode before Matrix Resurrections come out, so I am not proven wrong with that analysis. We get a long Naomi cutscene here, as she shows up on screen with a pre-recorded message about everything that was going on. The biggest note here is that the Patriots were on the verge of implementing SOP on the civilian population too, bringing the entire world under their control. Naomi couldn't allow that, so that's why she played the role of turn cloak in this game to make sure her virus ends up dismantling the system and preventing the Patriot Instrumentality Project. And many people have always said um, Ocelot somehow being able to do this is very silly. Like it's a classic. Naomi has this problem too because isn't she like how is she suddenly the world's greatest hacker, the world's greatest programmer? And uh, I guess Ocelot is more of a programmer, but still, it's it's just sort of like the generic. Scientists can do all sorts of science. There's no, there's no distinction in between fields, which we know is just false, given like the Ben Carsons of the world. You have to have some intelligence to be a brain surgeon, but that doesn't mean you have any idea what's going on in any other field in any other way in the entire world. Yeah, and it's like I don't know, Otacon is not like that, but it's a little silly. It's it's a little yeah. It's it's again the game the game being sort of like stuck, it having to solve issues that it was that were never designed to never be solved. Yeah, I think it's actually Sonny who's supposed to get the credit on yeah. the virus's complexity. So. so Snake convulses, passes out, and when he comes to, he's laying atop Outer Haven with Otacon standing over him. He says he'll be right back, he's going to go get some help, but then Otacon disappears, and then Snake is greeted by a different voice. Rise and shine, Snake. Look. The war is over. It's Liquid Ocelot, though that line reading seemed to be more Ocelot than Liquid. And he seems to be happy the war is over and wanted Snake to succeed. 
Ocelot gives us a Metal Gear AP history class, taking us back to the philosophers and working us up through the rise of Big Boss with screenshots displaying from previous games, um, the MSX games through Metal Gear Solid 3. It's basically the theory of Metal Gear everything. We've gone over all this before, that SOP and the Patriot AIs are the modern-day philosophers, and Ocelot went under his deepest cover yet, tricking himself into being liquid so that it in- so that his insurrection would give Snake an in to take down the system. The more interesting stuff, though, is the personal conflict between Solid Snake and Liquid Ocelot. This is it, brother. Our final moment. The battle has ended, but we are not yet free. The war is over. But... We still have a score to settle. Long before any sort of playable action begins, we see Snake and Liquid go at it for quite a bit, kicking, punching, cartwheeling, and regularly injecting themselves with nanomachines. It's in these moments we see that Ocelot isn't wearing Liquid's arm, but rather a phantom limb, a prosthetic. There is some brutal stuff in here, with Liquid literally pounding Snake's face in for a good minute. They then match move for move for a bit, they inject each other with nanomachines some more, and we see the two life bars from 1998's Metal Gear Solid labeled Solid Snake and Liquid fill up. Boss fight in a minute, but I wanted to give Brian a spot to talk about the stuff before the boss fight in this cutscene. It's very pro wrestling. So I can really describe this. Japanese pro wrestling specifically, it's just like the most unintentionally, intentionally homoerotic stuff, maybe in the whole series. Like It's just like... It's very gay and very wrestling because they're just like they're they're almost literally doing like a 90s all Japan style, like just chopping each other. Like, I'm tough. I can take it like helping each other up so they can continue chopping each other to prove who's the toughest. It's just very it's very homoerotic and very wrestling. And I love it. It's it's the silliest shit in the world. Yeah, um, I can't come up with two good wrestlers for this, but it just reminds me when they'd uh, trade uh, those uh, chest chops right against yeah. each other and neither of them would uh, sell it. Um, they would just kind of take it and just slap right back. And it's kind of what's going on here between Liquid and... I mean, it's it's every it's it's every like every like 90s Japanese wrestler. That's what they did. Kendo Kobashi did it all the time. Uh, but it, I mean, today's wrestlers, it'd just be like two Tomohiro Ishis hitting each other in the chest and loving it. But but they're too afraid to act on their feelings because they have a case of the not case. They're very good friends and also very good enemies. It's like if if they if they'd done a scene in Winter Soldier where they just started chopping each other and you're like, you guys are uh, compensating for something here. I can tell. All right, we'll talk about the Snake versus Liquid Ocelot boss fight now, which, uh, as we just mentioned, is a brawler fight that doesn't really use any mechanics from this game at all. It's most similar to MGS1 in your ending fight versus Liquid for obvious reasons, but they do throw in some more CQC options, as well as some kind of quick time events uh, related to the CQC, which will help you finish combos and stuff like that. Um, you also get some fun animations like Liquid doing uh, the Ocelot cartwheel from Metal Gear Solid 3. The boss fight breaks down into four parts, one for each Metal Gear Solid entry with a life bar overlay from that game, uh, you know, just to kind of keep the aesthetic there. Uh, stamina bar shows up when you get to the MGS3 portion as that's when that was introduced. Or at least that's when it was introduced for the bo- the final boss fight. You do have, uh, what's it called, one of those bars in Metal Gear Solid 2, but when you're fighting Solidus at the end, it's not like that. In fairness, I think that's the fight that's hardest to work into this framework. It really doesn't fit. Because it's Metal Gear Solid 2 and it never fits. It doesn't fit into anything. Uh, And then the soundtrack for each segment also reflects the game it's aping. Um, The Metal Gear Solid 1 portion plays the Encounter track. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 plays the Tinker Incident track. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 goes into Cynthia Harrell's Snake Eater song. And then the final portion is uh, 
just the old snake theme from this game. Uh, and when you get to the Metal Gear Solid 4 portion of this fight, you've basically won. Um, the mm. heads-up display goes away. Um, there's a couple quick-time events, but it's basically like interactive movie, and you just have to kind of finish beating the Ocelot out of... Or, sorry, finish beating the Liquid out of Ocelot, um, but you can't really lose at that point. Are the people who've lost this fight originally? Like, it seems pretty... It's easier than the Liquid fight from one. Um, I... I when I did play on uh, harder difficulties, I would die, but you would die on the first three sections. Once you get past the Metal Gear Solid three section, then you're you're basically done. I guess the first time through, unless somebody was playing on the hardest difficulties at the start, mm-hmm. I just don't. I don't. It seems like if you've got if you're good if you're good enough at this game to get to this part, I feel like you'd it'd be pretty hard to lose. Yeah, I don't have any. I don't have any. Like it's silly. And like the the animations kind of look weird with the better models, but other than that, it, it's just it is one of the it's one of the few ways in which this game trying to encapsulate all the other games really does work. Although I, it is fun to think about what if this game had been like really shitty, been like a legitimately bad game, it'd be very funny to have like it put itself with the other three, <laughs> like you couldn't yeah. escape from that. But it, it, as much as I it, it, like, again, I think it's still probably my favorite game of two thousand eight. I mean. I don't know. There's not a whole lot else. It's still one of the best games of the year, for sure. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, the problem, a lot of it just comes a lot with the amount of gameplay and the pacing of the story. Yeah. I think thematically, it's pretty good. Performance-wise, it's pretty good. Um, and it makes good use of the technology. Um, yeah. It really did uh, get the most out of the PS3. But It's just, mm, okay, this is, this is going to be a very strange comparison. I think this is a better entry in its series than what I'm going to say, but it is the return of the Jedi of these to me. Mm-hmm. To where, like, A New Hope and Empire Strikes Back are, like, two of my, if not my favorite movies, Empire might be my favorite movie, but two of the movies I've seen the most, for sure. Like, two of the 10, 15 movies that are just sort of imprinted on me the most, whereas Return of the Jedi, I don't really think about that often. It's just obviously worse to me. And, like, MGS1, MGS2, and MGS3 are three of my 12 favorite games. This is not. Yeah, I think, uh, I oh, I think to uh, Star Wars 1977 and Empire Strikes Back, I think you can argue legitimately that those are two of the best films of all time, um, at least Western cinema, for various reasons. You know, a lot of it's craft work. I'm not saying it's as, you know, deep as like Rashomon or something like that. But, you know, you do a greatest movies list. Star Wars is always on there. And if, you know, Empire should be on there. Um, but usually they're just like, we're only putting one Star Wars movie on this list. So um, Return of the Jedi, I think, is a very good analogy because I love all the Luke Skywalker stuff in there, just like I like all the Ocelot um snake stuff just like i like all the luke vader stuff like that core part of it is really good it's just kind of a lot of the plot surrounding that best part of the story are not as strong as the luke vader slash snake ocelot part of the story and in the same way it feels beholden to answer questions that maybe honestly yeah that, that makes sense because i don't i don't want to say that, that george lucas had the same sort of like, deliberately didn't want to answer questions but to answer questions that were not Answer questions in ways that they were not originally derived, like designed to answer. If that makes any sense, like, like the Luke Leia stuff was obviously not the original plan. He can say that as much as he wants. He's lying. <laughs> and just the same yeah. way, I I definitely can guarantee you when they were designing three, whatever sort of oversight Kojima had over designing Sigint and and Paramedic and Major Zero, he I guarantee you at no point did he say actually these are the Patriots. Guarantee you he did not say that at any point. I was just thinking Yoda's line in Empire where he says, you know, you know, Ben's like, there that boy is our only hope. And then Yoda's like, uh, no, there is another. You could just not do anything with that line in Return of the Jedi. Um, and then that just gives you something to pick up either, you know, with the prequels. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. it'd be something that happens after Return of the Jedi in terms of the chronology of Star Wars, but you can set up why Yoda would say there is another, you know, hope in somewhere in the prequels, or you could just do it straight in the sequel trilogy, which, you know, so I'm just saying like, they didn't have to answer who was that other that Yoda was mentioning in empire. They could have just, they would obviously have to rework the story because the whole Leia stuff is part of Luke's pathos and why Vader kind of pushes him over the edge. Uh, But, you know, I'm just saying the other thing is too, it's not a satisfactory answer because Leia doesn't actually do anything to help. Like, just her existence is what inspires Luke, mm-hmm. like her being his sister. But like, there's nothing. Uh, if there's one real problem with that movie, uh, aside from all the other problems, it's that the 
the Death Star and the 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 Endor stuff, the battle, like the you know, the space battle, that stuff's linked together. But then like the Luke Vader stuff's just happening at that same time, coincidentally. There's nothing like there's no there's no correlation. Even I hate to say this, but obviously Phantom Men has ripped that whole section off, but I think it linked those three events together better. Even though nobody like Darth Maul has no plot. I'm getting away off track here, but like this, this, it, I think it's I think it's good to talk about because I think four also fails in a lot of these ways where like Snake and Ocelot are just happening to fight. Mm-hmm. Like they don't actually there's nothing in this fight that actually decide like it's already over. Like they've already won. Mm-hmm. They're just doing they're just doing the fight, which I actually I think is the point. They're doing this fight because they just want to. Like they have this quarter settle. But I don't know, maybe maybe it would have worked better if they Maybe they could have had Ocelot, but they they he, they obviously wanted the shot of them on top of the whole up on top of everything, looking out over the ocean, which is a cool shot. But maybe it would have worked better if this fight had happened before the hallway scene, and the reason Snake is so hurt during the hallway scene is just, he's just got his ass beat by Ocelot, mm-hmm. and that so like that's more tension of like oh will he make it to like will he actually do the mission like. Maybe he could even have jeopardized the mission because he was so focused on fighting Ocelot and everyone was like, hey, Snake. Okay, that just made me think of another version where the the the, the, the split screen of everyone getting killed by Geckos is just <laughs> Snake just punching Ocelot in the face over and over. And they're like, Snake, what are you doing? Snake, help! And he's just like, no, I have to punch Ocelot. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe you could have reorganized that to make the hallway seem a little more... I guess the... I rebalance the tension because the hallway scene is tense, but after that tension, there's no like there's no threat really. It's just liquid there. Mm-hmm. I I always call him Ocelot because he's Ocelot. Come on, I didn't mention before too. I actually do like the twist. A lot of people think it's stupid, but it's it's stupid in the way that Metal Gear always makes it. Always it's just so silly, and it does give. I think it helps Ocelot's character a lot because it gives him sort of it does give him like a motivation in the mm-hmm. end. It doesn't really track game to game, but it still works. I think it works better than I think the uh, a lot of the other sort of phantom quasi formed patriot stuff. Like the big boss zero stuff, I'm not sure works, but I think Ocelot does. Liquid's last words portend chaos, claiming the world will be consumed by fire. The true dream of Big Boss, the outer heaven he dreamed of, Warsan's frontiers. In these last moments, Ocelot comes back, calling Snake Big Boss's doppelganger, which we've been calling him a proxy throughout our coverage. Ocelot gives one last, you're pretty good, and dies. With a weird bubbling sound effect, which we will learn is Fox Die taking him. Otacon comes to pick up Snake, telling him about how Sonny's Fox Alive killed the brain of the Patriot system, but left the brain stem intact. Namely, taking the decision-making part out of it, but allowing the data system's running infrastructure to live on. One big defragmentation. The part about brain and brain stem housing two separate functions made me think of Peace Walker, and the higher-level mammal pod AI and the lower-level reptile pod AI governing the unmanned weapons. But that's our next stop on this podcast, so no need to give that away now. I wonder if we did the right thing. Naomi, what did we lose? What did we save? We are entering the 74-minute ending cutscene, which I believe still remains the longest cutscene in any video game. But I'll be honest, a lot of it is boring. (laughs) I'm going to give the quickest of mentions to all the shit so we can get to the actually very good ending moments. It's labeled as the epilogue, Naked Sin. Um, going back to our spoiler warning about we know who Meryl marries, that is, of course, Johnny or Akiba, and very much not Solid Snake. Uh, in her final scenes, which is a wedding to Johnny, uh, she reconciles with her father, uh, Colonel Roy Campbell. Uh, Drebin shows what? up with... <laughs> Drebin shows up with flowers and champagne, and he gets to get drunk for the first time because apparently the Patriot nanomachines in him prevented him from doing so. He would also reveal that the Rat Patrol was working for the Patriots the whole time, and Rat PT-01 is an anagram for Patriot. Um, we see Little Grey steal the bouquet away from Mei Ling. Uh, Sunny makes a nice... Uh, 
little boy brown friend um, for no real reason because I guess she needs a friend to end her arc. And uh, when everyone asks Adekan, where is Snake? Um, Adekan just says, Snake, uh, that guy, he always keeps you waiting, huh? Um, just to play on that whole kept you waiting line that Snake is famous for. We also get... Uh, a whole segment that's just about Raiden and Rose, um, which is all the backstory we talked about a couple episodes ago or several episodes ago now about how um, the kid that supposedly was Roy and Rose's was really Jack's and they were hiding them to keep him safe from Patriot retaliation um, and that Rose has been loyal to uh, Jack this entire time. Uh, this stuff, like I appreciate the capper on Raiden's arc, but it, goes on for a long time it's ever it's very uh over the top and overwrought um you know maybe if you had spent more time with raiden playing him or otherwise Hmm. um maybe it would work a little better but for the amount of time he spent in this game it just feels like a little too much and then it's also kind of reducing rose to her you know just her womanhood um because she just talks about how now she can be the best wife and whatever mother or whatever it is uh, it's just very much tied up in her womanhood. There isn't much there. Rose didn't have much characterization in this. And again, I'm fine with them giving a Capra to Raiden story because it was kind of meant to be in some sense. But it's not good. No, it's not good. I guess I like the wedding scene is like the, uh, the I think the other time you get like every surviving character together, but they don't, there's something interesting that goes on. So it's just not good. I guess looking back on it, you can say it's, Actually, the movie's too new. I'm not going to talk about No Time to Die spoilers here. So. <laughs> um, finally, we cut to Solid Snake, back in his suit and back at Arlington Cemetery, like in the game's opening. He's there for Big Boss's grave, but he notices a fresh set of white flowers on the anonymous grave next door, marked for a true patriot. Of course, we know this as the boss's grave from the end of Metal Gear Solid 3. War has changed. Our war is over, he begins in his final tragic monologue. There's some good stuff here, so I'll drop it in, set to the tune of the game's love theme. War has changed. Our time has ended. Our war is over. But there's one more thing I must do. punishment I must endure. Erase my genes. Wipe this meme from the face of the earth. Snake takes out his operator, puts a bullet in the chamber, kneels down in front of Big Boss's grave, and sticks the gun in his mouth. I gotta say, everything about this scene is exquisitely shot and designed. The way the sun glares onto the screen, silhouetting Snake. The way you can hear every rattle of gun parts. The way Snake is gagging, shoving the barrel into his mouth. It's all just very well done. The camera pans up to the sky before we hear a gunshot and we cut back to Johnny and Meryl's wedding. It looks like the series Coda is going to be with Otacon, with the Metal Gear Saga theme playing in the background as we cut to black and roll voice credits. Which end on... What's that? Big Boss? Voiced by Richard Doyle? I guess we get what would now be called a mid credit scene. We cut back to the graveyard to a very much not-dead old snake panting on the ground, and Big Boss himself standing over him with the boss's Patriot machine gun in hand. We get a John Woo Dove flying entrance into our last title card, which says, Debriefing, Naked Son. Big Boss and Snake look to duel, but Boss CQC Snake into a hug and tells his son to let the gun go. Let it go, my son. I'm not here to fight. Or should I call you brother? 
aside the gun and live. This is where we learn all the Act 3 shenanigans about Big Boss's corpse was actually Solidus's, which in terms of DNA and biometric data would be a perfect match as Solidus was the third perfect clone. Big Boss talks about how the Patriot AIs had his body and mind locked away with nanomachines, and the only way to be freed was for the system to fall. Ocelot and Eva would end up being the ones to enact the plans to bring down the system and free Big Boss, and through that, learn the location of the man behind it all, Zero. The body we see Big Boss wearing right now was mostly made up of spare parts from Liquid and Solidus. Anyway, Big Boss goes on to explain the Patriot AIs and their reach, uniformity without will, a shapeless, nameless set of norms that found war and the war economy to be the most efficient way to propagate itself. Creating a cleaner battlefield was used as a guise to push military spending and technological innovation, resulting in this game's dystopia that doesn't seem too far from our own. Boss rolls out Zero, who's even older and more broken down than the two old, broken-down men we've been watching thus far. We even get to hear Zero piss, which, because a segment about the legacy of the Metal Gear saga wouldn't be complete without it. Boss talks about how the system must be returned to Square Zero, and pulls the plug on his former commanding officer, erasing him. The X-flashback mechanic gets you some shots of Major Zero from MGS3. With Zero out of the way, we have the last revelation of the game. Big Boss lets you know that the Patriots re-ran their Fox Die program for this conflict, repeating the same pattern. Using Drebin, they had Old Snake spread a new strain of Fox Die to kill Eva, Ocelot, and yes, Big Boss, the people conspiring to bring down their system. It's about to take Boss, and he'd like to die on the Boss's grave <laughs> if Snake would be so kind as to carry him there. Oh wait, I lied. One last revelation. This new fox die is also killing the old fox die in Snake, so he doesn't have to off himself if he doesn't want to. No time to die for old Snake, but it is time to die for Big Boss. He tells Snake not to waste the rest of his life fighting, and that he'll always respect Snake as a soldier and a man, and that the day that he killed the boss 50 years ago is the day that Naked Snake truly died. The world would be better off without snakes, and that broken world of snakes and metal gears ends with him. Our snake can simply go on as David, as a man. This takes me back to the boss's dying words. There can only be one snake and one boss, and now, in ending the narrative, with the death of Big Boss and Snake giving up that name, we now have a world without a snake or a boss. Big Boss collapses against the boss's grave, Snake lights Big Boss his cigar, and the game ends on this sound clip. It's silly, but it's cool. I actually really like that. Uh, they go through the trouble of making MGS4 Big Boss look like Solidus, even though he doesn't look like Naked Snake at all. Like, mm -hmm. he doesn't look like, like, Big Boss in MGS4 doesn't look like Naked Snake, and neither does Solidus. So it's just really funny. Because, like, I remember there being people like, uh, well, maybe that's what Solid Snake would look like when he gets older. It's like, no, we know what he looks like when he gets older. <laughs> mm-hmm. We also know what Big Boss looks like when he gets older. Like, Solidus looks absolutely nothing like MGSV era Big Boss. Which is just very funny. It's fu it's just funny to me that they went through all the trouble of modeling him to look a little bit like Solidus, but Solidus doesn't look like him, so who, like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. They could have just had him look like old. I guess I, I guess it would have been confusing. He had two almost identical looking old snakes, but I don't know. I, I like his character design a lot. I think it's, I like the jacket. It's one of the yeah. few jackets I would wear from this series. It just <laughs> looks cool. Um, I like all this. I mean, the the salute is hokey in a way that the 3-1 kind of wasn't. Mm -hmm. But it also, like, I mean, come on. They they had to know when they were making that game how, how powerful that moment was. And, like, 
there's no way they weren't going to reference it in some way. And it was good. It was good that they did because it's probably the, the top moment of the entire series, the original mm-hmm. salute. Mm-hmm. And I like that he can't like he's his body is literally falling apart. He can't do it. Yeah, he needs Snake to prop he's, him up. He's such a he's he's such a tough old bastard that he still does it. That tracks in more with it. Definitely tracks in more with like MSX Big Boss. It's just like mm-hmm. as a, unkillable. You know, as as we knew him at this point, knowing that it was thinking it was the same guy in Gold Games, uh, that he's just like super tough and hardcore. Whereas like I feel like prequel trilogy i hate calling it that uh big boss would have just like it seems very silly for him to be like well time to go die (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) can't wait to needlessly kill myself and i could have just called him i don't know i don't know it's it's i don't know if they ever really reconcile those two characters together properly but but it's a great moment it's it's great i it's probably the thing i think about from this game the most i I really like it yeah no and it's it, they definitely try to drive you away with like 70 minutes of other crap mm-hmm. <laughs> before mm-hmm. that. But when they actually get to this stuff, it's all pretty good. There is a big chunk of some of the exposition we've covered previously about what the Patriots were up to and some of the history between the 70s and now. But um, it's all done pretty well. Um, and it's just it's it's cool to see uh, Solid Snake and Big Boss share a space because just the way that the narrative kind of rolled out given technology and all sorts of other stuff. Mm. Um, this was really the only chance we were going to see these two characters really fully rendered together um, unless they decide to do a remake. And at this point, that's going to be without uh, Kojima. Um, yeah. So. And I am. Um, people don't like it. I, I, that seems like one of the things the translation of this game is pretty good from what I can tell. But that the back to zero, the, like the, that whole speech. I know people make fun of it. I kind of like it. Like I like the concept of it. It's it's very much a Kojima's piece though, where like he just keeps saying the same thing over and over. Um, but I I do feel like that one was probably hurt most by translation because it just translates kind of weird mm-hmm. from what I know of Japanese, which is not very much. I I don't I just heard a lot of it, and I you know I did do linguistic stuff. It just seems like that that. Using numbers as like a metaphor in Japanese is much. I don't want to say it's simpler. It's more. It's an easier concept. Like they they put more. Uh, they put more more I guess. Stock into the idea of like numbers as, not just representations of like numerical figures, but like as metaphors. I think they stand for forces in the universe and power. Mm-hmm. And like uh, different powers and different concepts, and like that's just much easier. That just seems much easier for a Japanese speaker to understand. For us, it's just like what the what is he like? The first time I saw it, it's like what the fuck is he talking about? But I like the concept. I like I like the concept. I do wonder if that like so he didn't name Major Zero Major Zero for that reason, but I do wonder if that's where the idea of majors of him being responsible for the Patriots came from. So he could use that metaphor. He probably thought of it like woke up in the middle of the night and wrote it down or something. I wonder if that's where Kojima, that like that's Genesis of working the MGS three cast back into this narrative somehow. But I, I personally, I think it's more likely that they just like, well, we have to have all, every character has to tie into this. Somehow. And it's just stupid. I've talked about it enough at this point. It's stupid. But the fact that the, the zero speech is generally good. I love super old, like 110 year old decrepit major zero. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's a really weird looking model. I like that that snake that that big boss is not uh like it it's it's good after V seeing him. Not, I mean, I guess again, no, that's not him. But but you get the sense through the backstory in MGSV that the real big boss is also looking for revenge like his revenge is also poisoning the system mm-hmm. and it is like a nice capper to have him just to have no animosity left like just to, just like there's no point in having this hatred anymore and just sort of because he definitely kills zero an act of mercy and also because you know we, as he says like we should we don't need to be like in our time is over we have done too much damage we need to go but there's no like vengeance in mm-hmm. in it he's just sort of like it's time we, we need to leave now old friend which yeah. is great. I, I like that. I like that emotion a lot. That's a very, I don't know. Big Boss is my favorite character in the series. And it's its a good, even though he wasn't fully formed at this point, and he was just Naked Snake, I think it's a great capper for that character. It, it's nice resolution for him. Mm-hmm. 
We do have a post-credits audio bit, as is Metal Gear tradition. It's nothing earth-shattering, though, just that Solid Snake has decided to quit smoking. So maybe that is earth-shattering? Oh well. Either way, that's a wrap on the story of Metal Gear Solid 4 Guns of the Patriots. We'll be back next time to do our patented wrap-up episode. And that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. I've been Manu. Who is that manuclear bomb? I've been Brian. Pando's got me where I am today. And where I am is talking about the end of Metal Gear Solid 4 for 25 streams. Was it worth it? Who's to say? Yeah. Uh, shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, here's to you. Thank you.